Stripping Down Science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Dr Chris Smith, and with Dr Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now, on the way, children can read your mind. Yes, that's right. So in a new study. And also they can do it much earlier than we first thought. So you better think about that next time you go raiding their money box. Also, what's best for the environment and your pockets when it comes to making car journeys? Is it a sat-nav or a map and some common sense? A good news for people with HIV, because there are several new drugs in the pipeline that hit the virus in a very new way, and we'll be finding out how they work. And this week on The Naked Scientist, we are looking at toxins, yeah, the nasty stuff. We're looking at toxins, venoms, poisons. How do snakes, spiders and scorpions make their chemical arsenals? And how do these venoms actually work? How does anti-venom work for people who get bitten, unfortunately? And uh, we're going to be finding out how doctors and farmers are making use of these substances to develop new drugs and pesticides. And in this week's Kitchen Science, we've sent Ben out to find how nettles actually sting you and whether stinging nettle tea is really worth the effort. Well, now I'm going to take a handful of my nettles and I'm going to put them in my... Ah! Okay, that's strike one for the nettles. Let's hope I just don't get stung again. That sounds like a drink with a certain amount of kick. But if you've got any questions for us about the science of toxins, venoms, poisons, that kind of thing, or even stinging nettle tea, email us chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. So, Dr Chris is a new dad, and I wonder if... Do you sometimes feel like your baby can read your mind, Chris? Um, yes, because every time I feel like I want to go to sleep or I want to actually do something, she suddenly decides she needs attention. So, yes, definitely. Well, researchers in Italy have shown that actually you may be right Um, because one of the unique characteristics that makes us all human is our ability to mind read. So this is to represent in our own heads what someone else might be thinking. Women are better at this than men, though, aren't they? Obviously. Anyway, experts think that this is actually at the heart of human understanding and communication, but no one really knows at what point in life we develop this ability. And some people, some experts think we acquire it around about three to four years of age, and others think that babies might have this kind of ability from birth and they just improve it over time. So now Luca Surian, who's a psychologist at the University of Trento in Italy, and his colleagues have just published a paper in the journal Psychological Science showing that babies as young as 13 months old might be able to read our minds. How do they know that? You can't, you can't ask them. Well, what they've done is some experiments and they made little babies, so 30-month-old babies, watch an animation of a caterpillar searching for either an apple, which is caterpillar's favourite food, obviously, or a piece of cheese hidden behind two screens. Did you ever have that book, The Big Hungry Caterpillar? Yeah, that... just like that. So in some scenes in the animation, the caterpillar could see, you know, a human hand would point to where their favourite food was. And um, in other scenes, there wasn't this clue. And so the caterpillar either went to the food where the hand was pointing, but sometimes it went to the other screen, even though the hand was pointing where its food was. And so when the animation showed the caterpillar doing this, you know, doing the wrong thing, the babies looked at the animation much longer and they looked very puzzled. So the scientists conclude that this means that the babies were expecting... You know, they they thought that the caterpillar, with that information, ought to go and find the apple, but then it didn't, so they were confused. So these experiments, at least, suggest that even at such a young age, babies do have some kind of capacity to process, you know, know what someone else ought to be thinking from the information available. So next time your baby stares at you with some puzzlement, they could be actually reading your mind. Mine does that all the time. Well, another reason to look puzzled is... Finding your way around. Now, women are notoriously bad at reading maps, allegedly. Having said that, my wife is better with a map than I am, and I've only known her to get lost once, so I usually ask for her directions rather than the other way around. But which is best, a map, or my wife, or a sat-nav system, one of these satellite navigation systems that knows where your car is and then says go left at the next junction, turn right, whatever. Which, which is best in terms of getting to places, which is best for the environment? Well, that was what was on the minds of a couple of researchers from, from Taiwan. It's actually Wen, Chi, Wen Chen Li and Ba Wen Cheng, who are at Yunlin University of Science and Technology in Taiwan. And what they did was to recruit 32 drivers. They gave half of them a sat-nav system and a series of routes to go on using the sat-nav. The other half were told to take a combination of these routes just using a map and their own common sense. And the researchers clocked up how far the drivers went how they got from A to B, what routes they took, how often they had to change route, and who covered the most or the least miles. And what they found was that the people who were driving with sat-nav covered on urban roads journeys that were 7% shorter on average, and on rural roads 2% shorter. 
So the sat-nav was always finding a shorter, a shorter route and therefore better for the environment, less petrol being burned. The other interesting thing they found was that the people who were not using the maps, so the sat-nav drivers, didn't change their route as often. So the people using maps in the countryside were, were continuously revising their routes and changing routes. And they infer from this that this could be a sign of driver frustration and this might lead to dangerous driving. So they say sat and have safer all round. So they didn't measure sort of swearing, cursing, getting out of the car and going, I'm never driving with you again, I'm walking home. Not You've that. obviously been in the car with me before. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, on a completely different note, um, there's a hot off the press, uh, the embargo on this break at six o'clock, is... Um, a story about a new gene that's been discovered that plays an important role in lung cancer. Now, lung cancer has a, a really poor survival rate, which is often due to the fact that the disease isn't diagnosed until it's spread around the body, and often it spreads very aggressively, which makes it difficult to treat. So now a team of researchers in the US have found that faults in a gene called LKB1 might actually be responsible for causing lung, cells to, uh, lung cancer cells to spread in this way. So in experiments published in the journal Nature this week, the scientists took some mice that were carrying faults in genes that are known to increase the, the development of cancer, the risk of cancer, and they crossbred them with mice carrying faults in this LKB1 gene. And so these double fault mice, they were found to develop highly aggressive lung tumours that spread very fast. And in healthy cells, this gene, LKB1, helps to protect us from cancer. So it's known as a, a type of gene called a tumour suppressor. And in order for cancer to develop, cells need to pick up faults in several different genes, which is kind of a bit like mixing a cocktail of different genetic mistakes. But it really seems like faults in this LKB1 gene act like, you know, the vodka in the cocktail and really get it going. So is this then the, the clue as to if someone's got this particular gene, they may likely, most likely have spread already? Yes. I mean, the in the future, you could potentially develop... Um, LKB1 as a, as a drug target if you could find some way of reactivating its function. Um, and you could also use it as a prognostic tool to work out how someone's likely to do or the best way of treating them. But it does have to go hand in hand with finding um, better ways to diagnose cancer earlier. So, you know, there's research underway to try and spot lung cancer earlier when you might have some chance of Just treating lung it cancer successfully. Or, because a lot of these genes are also involved in other cancers too and they, they help other cancers spread. So what about things like breast cancer or uh, ovarian cancer? Does it work in those? Well, this paper was just looking at lung cancers but um, this gene LKB1 is involved in a type of syndrome that can predispose people to several types of cancer so it's, it's likely to play a role in others too. Oh well that's encouraging. We'll have to obviously wait and see because this is an initial look-see and it's going to take yeah. a while to it's, see how that translates days, to, the, to the clinic. Well sticking with health, um, there's very good news for anyone who's infected with HIV because a major problem with HIV is that the virus mutates and you become resistant to the drugs that we have to treat you with. And now there's a new clutch of drugs which are coming out in the pipeline uh, and they work in a new way. And the reason that's exciting is because as they work in a new way, the virus won't have any kind of immunity or resistance to these agents. Um, there's two classes of drugs. One, they're called CCR5 antagonists or fusion inhibitors. Uh, they're two drugs, Maraviroc, which has been made by Pfizer. They also make Viagra. And also Vicriviroc, which has been made by Shearing Plow. And those are the two new agents. And they stop the virus locking onto the surface of cells because when the virus targets a cell it wants to infect, it partly locks onto a molecule called CD4, but it also locks onto a molecule called CCR5. And it has to lock onto both, otherwise it can't get in. And the clue for that came from the fact that we're now seeing members of the, the general population who have a mutation, a bit of, bit of their CCR5 gene missing, and they cannot be infected with HIV. There are people in Africa who have been infected with HIV by working as prostitutes many, many times, and the virus just disappears. It can't gain a foothold in those people. And so that's where the clue for this particular drug came from. So these drugs block that particular surface receptor on the cells and stop the virus getting into the cells. That's encouraging. The other class of agents uh, are called integrase inhibitors, and there's a new one called raltegravir, which has been made by Merck. And HIV is a problem because when it gets into a cell, it produces a DNA copy of its genetic material, which it then inserts into the host person's own genetic material. So you have in your body copies of HIV lurking inside your genetic blueprint. So it's very hard to get rid of the virus because it's lurking inside you. And what this new drug, Raltegravir, does is it stops the drug, the, the virus, inserting that copy of itself into the host genome. So it's easier to get rid of. And although these drugs haven't yet been approved, it looks like they will pretty soon. And in recent trials where they've been used in, on compassionate grounds, people who have been at end-stage disease, they've got AIDS-defining illnesses and the virus in the bloodstream is creeping up because their own drugs are not working anymore. When they were given a combination of these new drugs, in 60% of those patients, the amount of virus in the bloodstream fell to undetectable levels.
That's really impressive because I remember about 10 years ago, I think, the papers were coming out, particularly where they found these CCR5, you know, these receptors. And it's, it's taken you know, a, good, a good part of 10 years to, to get to a drug that's, that's It's quite amazing installed. to think that the answer to a problem is already out there in nature, that there were people who just could not be infected with HIV. And it wasn't just people in Africa. There were people in America as well. There was a number of people who had multiple partners who died of AIDS, and those people never succumbed at any time to AIDS themselves and the reason was they couldn't be infected because they had this particular piece of genetic material missing in one of their genes. It was big enough deletion that the virus couldn't use that particular structure on the cell surface but a small enough deletion that it still worked enough for the person to be healthy. I mean, do you reckon that a drug like that could be useful as a prophylactic to um, to actually, you know, could give to people at high risk and it might prevent them from being infected? In the well, we already place? do actually. People who come into contact with HIV and haven't got the haven't got the disease can be put on a prophylactic cocktail of drugs for a period of time, which will stop them becoming infected, and it does work pretty well. So we do already do that. So that's really encouraging news. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. So Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. This week we're talking about the science of venoms, poisons and toxins. Coming up very, very shortly we'll be talking to Jim Olson. He's from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre over in the US. And they've been using scorpion venom as a way to highlight tumours. And this is particularly interesting in the, concept of, in the context of brain cancers because you can then highlight where the cells are in the brain which are abnormal and remove just those cells and therefore minimise the damage to healthy brain tissue. And we've also got waiting in the wings Gavin Lang. He's from the University of Liverpool and he's going to be talking about how snakes make venom, what that venom does, how it can be used to find other useful targets for how things work in the human body and also how we make antivenom. Anyway, here's a question that we haven't been able to answer, uh, which is a question that was sent in by Keith O'Donnell, who's in Louisiana. And he says, we have a lot of spiders here, and uh, tying in with our venomous theme, and he's noticed that the overwhelming majority of spiders lie in wait for their prey with their heads facing towards the centre of the web. And in fact, he doesn't ever recall seeing a spider waiting with its head up. So they all... um, you know, they all wait with their heads in the middle of the web. Is this particular to spiders or to one species of spiders? Uh, has anyone made any observations on this? I, I think it's a really good know. question. I had a really good look for the answer to this question, and I cannot find the answer. So if anyone out there is a spider expert and knows why spiders prefer to point downwards on their webs, I'd, I'd be delighted to know, because I think it's true. I've, I've had a look at the odd orb spider I've come across, and they all do seem to point downwards. I wonder if it's either looking upwards means they're more likely to get the sun in their eyes. I don't know if that makes a difference. Um, and also, if water comes down, it's going to land in their face which they may not like as well. I'm not I don't sure. know. Or maybe it's to do with sensing vibration on their web. Who knows? But if you've got any ideas, do let us know. Now, Kat, I've got an email here from Laura Gross, and she says, I want to say I love your show. I'm an English teacher, and I'm actually living deep in the mountains of Japan, and I listen to your podcast as I drive to and from the schools at which I teach. I've got a question for you. As a non-smoker, I'm proud to boast that I have successfully convinced my boyfriend and my father to quit smoking. We hear all the time about tens of thousands of chemicals being in cigarettes, including things like formaldehyde, but why are they there? Would smoking straight tobacco be as harmful... And if so, why aren't cigarettes made that way in the first place? Is it the chemicals that smokers are addicted to or is it the tobacco? Well, the main thing that smokers are addicted to is the chemical called nicotine, which is basically a drug that your brain starts to crave when you expose yourself to it. But there's more than 4,000 chemicals in cigarettes, and they come from a variety of sources. Now, some of them are actually in the tobacco plant itself. Um, Some of them are absorbed from the air by tobacco plants, so including this radioactive chemical called polonium. So tobacco plants are very good at incorporating this into the tobacco itself. Um, Some chemicals are produced when tobacco is processed. Some of them are added in when cigarettes are made. But the most uh, number and the most dangerous chemicals in tobacco are actually created when you burn a cigarette. So the the chemicals of burning um, are actually just produced by the very act of lighting a cigarette and inhaling something that's burning into your lungs. So it's a pretty good idea not to be smoking and inhaling these things. You can find out a lot more about the chemicals in smoke um, from Cancer Research UK's Smoker's Poison campaign, which we ran a a few months ago, and that's www.smokerspoison.com. But yes, they come from a lot of sources, and also just straight tobacco or roll-up cigarettes uh, don't seem to really make a difference. There's a few more additives in in, um, commercial cigarettes, but... They're still most of them are just coming from the act of burning a cigarette and inhaling they that smoke. Added things to cigarettes. I know this happened in New York not so long ago to mean that they don't 
keep burning because people were, were worried quite rightly about fires being started by cigarettes that if you drop one it'll keep burning and they stopped adding things that would keep them burning and started adding retardants to make them go out so that they wouldn't set fire to things. You'd have to keep relighting them or smoke them really fiercely, I suppose. Yeah, yeah there are various chemicals that do keep, uh, basically keep your fags burning. Um, I mean, you can tell the difference because if you just make a roll-up from tobacco, it keeps going out. And obviously smokers <laughs> think it's more convenient if they don't have to keep lighting their cigarettes. But, um, you know, obviously we do know that smoking causes a lot of cancers. So uh, best for not to. Uh, anyway, here's a different question. Um, Slightly related, perhaps, but um, we have a question from Edward Akkad in Canada, and he wants to know, uh, what are the main components and causes of household dust? Your house dusty? My house is filthy. Well, that's because it's got you living in it, exactly. and I'm not just being facetious and rude. It's true, uh, the dust is mainly us. It's skin cells, and if you look at the stats, I think the average person loses between fifty and 100,000 skin cells every minute. So that's half a million skin cells an hour. If you add that up over a lifetime, it's a couple of stones worth of dead skin that's just piling up around you. And those flakes of skin which just come off the surface of your body accumulate in the carpet, in the furnishings, on things, and they dry up like little husks. And they're very, very light, of course. So as soon as some heat and some wind wafts through, they, they go floating up in the air. So most of the dust that's around us is just us. And, of course, because it's bits of us, it's nutritious, and there are things that eat it. And you have house dust mites, and these are a very, very tiny microscopic organism which which wanders around. It's got lovely little jaws, and it will grab these particles of skin and eat them. And some people who are unlucky enough to have asthma invariably have an allergy to the poo of these dust mites because when they eat the skin, they turn it into these protein-laden poos that they deposit all over your house and they go up in the dust as well you breathe that in and they can they can irritate the lungs and you get an asthma attack that's what happens with me so i probably ought to do some more cleaning i think <laughs> hmm, certainly in your house but anyway this is the naked scientist and we are talking this week about the science of venoms poisons and toxins and jim olson and his team are from the fred hutchinson cancer research center over in seattle and they found a way to use scorpion venom to make a paint which makes it easier for us to see cancer cells. And this means that surgeons can be more certain that they're taking out the entire tumour, and that can limit the damage to healthy tissue. Jim's on the line with us now. Hello, Jim. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you for joining us. Um, tell us about your technique, how does it work? Uh, we took a peptide which comes from a scorpion venom, which is called chlorotoxin, and we linked it to a molecule called Psi 5.5, which is a little molecular beacon. It lights up. Now, the scorpion toxin binds to cancer cells, but not to normal cells. And so our idea was that we would inject this into the veins of a mouse that has cancer and see whether or not the chlorotoxin could carry the molecular beacon to the cancer cells and make them glow. And indeed, uh, when we inject mice that have tumors and wait about a day or two, uh, we can put the mice under a camera that picks up near-infrared light, which is emitted from the molecular beacon, and it's really easy to, to, to see the tumour compared to the normal brain around it. So you can see the tumour even inside a person, or you know, even inside a mouse? Uh, the, the light waves that are emitted by this molecule that we made uh, have a very short path length. So this was developed primarily to help surgeons who want to be able to see whether they got all the cancer while they're doing their operation. So the point is that the whole tumor, when they open up the cavity, will be glowing. And then as they take more and more of it out, the pieces that are still glowing are where the cancer is still left behind. And how sensitive is this technique? Because um, part of the problem with cancer is it only needs a very few cells to start the cancer growing again. Well, that was one of the big surprises of our study. Uh, we initially started working on this for brain cancer, and then when we tested it in other models of cancer, such as prostate cancer and colon cancer, we found that it was sensitive for picking up these kind of cancers as well. And in one case, we had an instance where it picked up a nodule of cancer as small as 200 cells, and that's about 5,000 times more sensitive than an MRI. And so that's really tiny. Tell us a bit more about this, this toxin, um, this chlorotoxin. How, how does it recognize cancer cells and not healthy cells? We believe that it's binding to a component of the matrix metalloproteinase 2 complex. And in... in um, easy to understand terms, the matrix metalloproteinase 2 complex is what cancer cells use to eat away normal tissue to make space for the, so that the cancer can grow. 
And so for that reason, this complex is expressed on cancer cells, but not on normal tissue. And do you think that this kind of paint might have some effect, um, might possibly be useful for spotting cancers that have spread throughout the body? Or is it just the wavelength isn't long enough to, to get out of the body again? Well, in some cases, yes. It, uh, for example, if a person has uh, breast or prostate or testicular cancer and the surgeons have the cavity open and they're interested in seeing whether lymph nodes are involved, the wavelength is long enough that they would be able to see whether the lymph nodes are involved. You really couldn't do that in a scan and, and be able to see things that deep in the body. We're really talking about superficial cancers or cancers that are surgically open. So what's the next step for this? Are you going to start testing it in, in patients soon? Yeah, there, there are two directions that we're going. Uh, one is to test it in patients, and we're working uh, with, with a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts to advance this as quickly as possible to uh, human clinical trials. Uh, because this company has already brought chlorotoxin into humans, there's a lot of safety data already available, and we think that we could be in clinical trials within 18 to 24 months. The other direction that we're going with this is to see whether it could be used as a cancer screening method. So, for example, people who are at risk for skin cancer, would they be able to, to take a dose of this tracer and then just go into their dermatologist and have a scan to see which moles or which areas of their skin should be biopsied? Uh, and, and so we're thinking about that for the more superficial cancers like skin cancer or colon cancer or esophageal cancer. And, Jim, just to finish off, um, do you ha- are you confident that this scorpion venom-based marker will bind to all kinds of cancer cells? Because one of the things we've learned about cancers is, of course, they're a very heterogeneous cell population. There are stem cells in there. There are mature cancer cells. Will it bind to everything, or are we going to miss some cells? Well, it's, it's, uh so far, we've tested it in six different kinds of cancer, and it has lit up all of those tumors. Uh, within an individual cancer, it looks as though in some types of cancer, it's lighting up almost every cell, and in other types of cancer, there are some cells that are lighting up and some cells that are not. But they're so intermixed that for at the level of precision of surgery, uh, the, the ones that are not lighting up are just uh, entangled with the ones that are lighting up, so you'd, you'd be able to take that whole group of cells. Thank you. That's a very interesting piece of research and thank you for joining us uh, and telling us about it Jim my pleasure Jim Olson from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre he's in Seattle in the US and he's using scorpion venom to highlight tumours so you can minimise the damage that you do when you do surgery to remove brain tumours it is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat coming up shortly we'll be journeying to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia to find out how a marine shellfish is giving us uh, a painkiller 10,000 times more powerful than morphine and also joining Gavin Lang from the University of Liverpool to find out how snakes make their venoms and how we can make anti-venom for the poor people who get bitten And now it's time to cross the pond and hear from our friends over at Science Update. And they have a new presenter, who's Susanna Bard. This week for The Naked Scientists, we're going to talk about why melting polar ice sheets may not be the biggest cause of sea level rise in response to global warming. But before we get too serious, Suzanne's going to tell you about how some foxes are mixing it up in the high Arctic. In foxes, wolves, and coyotes, males and females often share the parental duties, bringing in food and protecting the young. And for many years, researchers thought these species were monogamous. But a recent study of Arctic foxes on Bylet Island in Canada suggests otherwise. University of Alberta biologist Lindsay Carmichael and her colleagues took DNA samples from 49 Arctic foxes. Carmichael analyzed the DNA fingerprints of the babies and found that some of the furry canines had different fathers from their siblings. What we found was that in 75% of the dens, the foxes were monogamous, but in the other 25%, the foxes were not. Carmichael thinks that increasing the genetic diversity of a mother's litter in any given year could improve the odds that one or more of her pups will survive. Thanks, Suzanne. On a more serious note, we know that sea levels are rising because of global warming. If they rise by just a few feet, it could devastate or even submerge coastal cities. The best-known contributor is the melting polar ice sheets. But according to a study by University of Colorado geological scientist Mark Meyer and his colleagues, 60% of the world's ice melt actually comes from glaciers and smaller ice caps scattered across the globe. And we also project to the future that this contribution will be greater than that of the ice sheets, at least to the end of the century. He adds that glaciers and ice caps melt faster than polar ice sheets because they're smaller. And what's more, melting ice can lubricate glacier beds so they slide more quickly into the sea. Thanks, Bob. 
We'll be back next week with more amazing science from across the pond. Until then, I'm Suzanne Bard. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. And of course, you can hear more from the team at their website, which is scienceupdate.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. So we've looked at scorpions, and uh, now we're going to be shortly looking at spiders and snakes and also some of the other most dangerous things on the land. But what about the dangers of the sea? Well, once again, there are poisonous creatures that our scientists are using to work out how we can use poisons that they make to our own advantage. And one scientist who's doing this is Bruce Livett. He's based at Melbourne University. And when I was there in April in Australia, I caught up with him to find out how he's persuaded a shellfish to surrender the secret of a painkiller, which is 10,000 times more powerful than morphine. What I've been doing is um, exploring... Uh, the potential of animals that live in the Great Barrier Reef uh, for production of novel painkillers. Specifically, what are you looking at? Well, we've been looking at uh, venomous cone shells. These creatures developed just after the death of the dinosaurs, and in that 500 million years since, they've developed a very sophisticated venom apparatus. And they go out each night and they hunt down their prey. And uh, they do this by injecting them with a cocktail of very small molecules called peptides that make up the venom. And uh, one of those peptides is of particular interest to us because it's a very potent analgesic. And we hope to develop this for the treatment of some very painful conditions like neuropathic pain. That's the kind of pain that you would have if you lose a limb. You might have heard of phantom limb syndrome where people have had an accident, lost a limb, and then they can't get to sleep at night because of the pain in their so-called phantom limb, which is very real to them. Other very painful conditions, mostly this affects uh, older people, is shingles. And uh, once again, very painful condition and a large unmet need with uh, existing medicines not being very good at curing the pain. How does the cone snail actually use this? Why does it want to use a painkiller to kill something? Well, I think it perhaps doesn't need it, the painkiller, but it uses there are something like 200 other components in the venom. It uses uh, these components to put its animal to sleep, and uh, that means that the animal is not going to thrash around and they can eat it quite quietly without uh, it feeling apprehensive, and maybe that's where the painkiller comes in. What do these shells actually look like, then, and how do they catch things? Well, they're very pretty. There are over 500 different varieties of cone shell, and they've been collector's pieces for hundreds of years. In fact, everybody in the 1600s who uh, had a curiosity cabinet where they kept biological specimens wanted a cone shell. And they were highly prized because uh, they came mostly from the Indo-Pacific region, and that meant uh, that they were quite expensive to buy. In fact, some of these uh, cone shells uh, sold at auction in The Hague for more than a Vermeer painting. (laughs) These days, um, well, you can still pay up to $1,000 for a very rare cone shell, but mostly you can get a very good collection, such as the one that I have behind me there, for just 5 to $10 a piece. But how do they actually catch stuff? How do they use this amazing example of overkill, the, mm. these toxins, to, to catch things? Yeah, it's amazing that they need this overkill. I mean, one of the toxins would probably serve the purpose well. Um, I think that uh, the variety of toxins is there because their prey changes and they have to adapt their venom to the prey. So they make this uh, suite of toxins in the hope that one of them will kill the the prey. Cone shells are are marine snails. And so like a garden snail, they're pretty slow moving and uh, they need some benefits. And what they do is they lay in wait and they put this long tongue out of their mouth called a proboscis. And on the end of the tongue, they've loaded it up with a modified hollow tooth. Uh, It's called a radula. And that tooth uh, is stuffed full of venom and uh, they actually make a whole quiver of these arrows or harpoons if you like they make them in one of the sacs in their internal digestive system and uh, they move them into an adjacent sac and then they put their tongue back and pick up with the muscular end of the tongue they pick up one of these arrows that's stuffed full of venom and then uh, they impale their victim with this now the victim it depends on the kind of cone snail involved but There are basically three kinds of victims. There are fish. Some of these cone snails hunt fish, uh, and they're the ones that are dangerous to us. There are others, majority of them, hunt marine worms, and then there's still another group that hunt um, other mollusks. 
say I was to, to go near one and it stuck one of these things in my foot, what would mm. I notice then? Um, well, if it was of the kind that hunt fish, uh, you could be in trouble. There have been 30 deaths from cone shell uh, envenomation worldwide, and there's no antidote to it. So the first uh, hint that you would have would be that you're, you get blurred vision and then your respiration starts to slow, and then you would die from asphyxia up to seven to nine hours later. But the thing that interested us was in the descriptions of such envenomations that they said that the patient died a painless death. And so I thought, well, I know what kills the person, but what is the component there that acts as an analgesic? So we went out on purpose to look for the analgesic component. Have you tracked it down? Yeah, yeah, we, we tracked... Uh, there are actually a number of different components, but the one that we hunted, that we tracked down, um, we got from a cone shell from Broome in Western Australia, Conus victoriae, its name is, named after Queen Victoria, but in fact it's not in the state of Victoria, it's in Western Australia in Broome. And uh, this component is a small peptide of 16 amino acids long, and that acts as a very potent analgesic uh, between a thousand and ten thousand times more potent than morphine. How do you know it's going to work in us? We don't. Um, we know that it works in animal models of pain, and uh, we're currently, just in phase two clinical trials, testing it on uh, people who have painful sciatica. And the results of those studies will be known mid-year. Uh, at this stage, everything's coded, and so the patients don't know if they're, going, if they're receiving an, a placebo or the real drug. And then the results will be analysed and, well, the results will tell us whether it's going to be an effective medicine or not. So we've got our fingers crossed, as you can see. I've got both fingers crossed, my legs crossed. So we're hoping for a good result because there is really a big unmet need out there of patients who, uh, for whom um, conventional uh, analgesics are not working and they need something else. So we, we hope that the cone shell has the solution to uh, their problems. And that was Bruce Livett, who's talking to Chris uh, there about getting painkillers from comb snails. Now, ultimately, um, in case you're worried that we're going to be mashing up snails to give to people, Bruce has actually been able to find the gene in the snails that encodes this venom. So you can basically make it in the lab without having to mash snails up. So uh, no need to go, you know, scurfing around in the Great Barrier Reef to look for snails. So I think that's really fantastic. I hope the results of the trials are successful. Let's hope it works. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. It is the Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. In a second, Gavin Lang's here from Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and he's going to be talking about how we, well, how we don't get bitten by snakes but what happens when you do, why they make venom, how we make anti-venom and what that venom can also tell us about how our body works. And then later on in the programme we've got Ben uh, drinking some nettle tea and also finding out how stinging nettles actually sting you and we'll also be venturing back to Australia to catch up with Robin Williams, who was talking to Glenn King earlier this year. He's from the University of Queensland, and they're using one of the most venomous spiders in the world, but they've borrowed the toxin from it to help make a biodegradable and environmentally friendly pesticide. So we'll be joining them later. But right now, Gavin, welcome. Thank you for coming in, Hi, all the Chris. way from Liverpool. Yep. Now, snake venom. Um, we're lucky in this country. We've only got one poisonous snake. Ireland mm. and I think New Zealand don't have any, do they? But um, that's right. Why do snakes have this venom, and how does it work? Uh, snakes over the years, over millions and millions of years, have uh, evolved a very complex, uh, huge array of, like an arsenal, in order to uh, defend themselves or to immobilise their prey before uh, eating it. Um, we're only just discovering the complexity of a lot of the venoms uh, present in certain snakes uh, because they they seem to have a very specific role uh, either they can immobilize by uh, uh, inhibiting the action of the nerves or it can immobilize by uh, by uh, causing a complete thrombosis of the hemostatic uh, uh, system the so, snakes don't need to bite us do they because if you look at say cobras and things they spit venom in people's eyes is that effective or do they do that to blind you and then they come in and bite you uh, on top uh, sp spitting cobras have this wonderful adaptation where the, they've got these holes in the front of their fangs so you can get an, a plume like an aerosol plume of uh, snake venom. And if you get it in your eyes, you can get like a chemical conjunctivitis. And it is very, very painful. Um, but it won't 
um, envenom you in that way. The reaction is purely local. But these spitting cobras can also bite with it, with these fangs and can immobilise because the, the venom is uh, neurotoxic and can paralyse um, a patient in the worst case uh, scenario. You don't seem to need very much venom to get a pretty profound effect on a person who gets bitten. You, that is true. I mean, the the most uh, toxic of the, the venoms is probably the inland uh, taipan of Australia, and it's got a very low, um, what we call LD50, which is the, the standardised uh, unit of uh, lethality. But um, the you, you, you're right, you, uh, you only need a very small amount of circulating snake venom in order to cause a huge kind of a disturbance in you. And if you survive, you can be, you can become a, a cripple for the rest of your life if if it's left untreated. I've got an email here from Ayan Hook, who is listening in Delft uh, in the Netherlands. He says, I think your, your show is a lovely podcast, one of the best in the world, he says. That's his opinion, obviously. Now, when I heard you were going to talk next week about venoms and toxins, I was wondering how you produce anti-venom. Okay, anti-venom has been around for about at least 100 years, but the techniques of uh, producing anti-venom have not really altered a lot in that time. What normally happens is a very large animal is is immunised over a long period of time with very small amounts of snake venom, so it won't harm the animal. And traditionally, they've used horses. So what you would do is milk the snake or whatever, get some of its venom from, that, from the animal, mm-hmm. and then inject that into the horse... Yeah, in very small quantities, so the horse will not be affected at all. It's only a very, very a tiny amount, so the horse will then raise antibodies against this antigen that's been injected in the same way that, that humans immunised with uh, sm- smallpox would would be raising antisera or antibodies against So, you, so the horse gets antibodies in the bloodstream? That's correct, and over a long period of time, up to maybe six to eight, eight months or so, um, the horse would then become hyperimmune. And uh, every so often, some serum is then drawn from the horse and immunoglobulins are purified from that. And from that, uh, you can either split the uh, immunoglobulins into smaller uh, components such as the FAB or the FAB prime uh, 2. Uh, uh, and you then component. inject those into the person who gets bitten. And these are then uh, infused intravenously into a person who's, uh, who presents themselves in hospital and who's uh, envenomed. And so the antibodies would, in that victim, lock onto the venom and neutralise it? They would. They would uh, seek out the circulating venom in, in the patient and immobilize it in a neutral they would form a complex an immune complex that would be completely harmless and would then be flushed away normally and just to finish off um gavin you also are using the way in which these venoms work in people for clues as to how our own bodies work what have you flushed out from doing that and how does it work how's that process work well there are a lot of uh um uh a, a Proteins that have been isolated from uh, snake venoms that have been uh, seen as uh, very useful over, over the over the years. Um, particularly in, in our kind of work, we've we've isolated uh, a, a proteins that have inhibited or activated uh, platelets. Now these are very important in in clotting, and we've seen various uh, signaling events that happen in the in the course of. Uh, activation or inhibition of uh, uh, platelets, and these could be perhaps exploited as perhaps a, 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 a therapeutic target uh, that could be um, explored in the future. Um, if only uh, we would be getting far more research income, or, or pharmaceutical companies could could pick up on this. So, better ways to make the blood not clot in people who have clotting problems such as heart attacks, strokes or other hypercoagulable disorders. Thank you very much, Gavin Lang from Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. And yes, if there's any funding bodies there, obviously Gavin would like some more money. Anyway, um, Australia is a really good place to go. If you're looking for nasty creatures with lots of venom, they have deadly spiders, they're living under the toilet lids apparently, snakes and jellyfish, all sorts of things. So we're going to hand over to our Australian equivalent now, Robin Williams. Hello, I'm Robin Williams, presenter of The Science Show on ABC Radio in Australia. It's a programme similar to the Naked Scientists, but they don't let me go naked. But enough of me. Scientists in many areas are looking to the natural world for solutions to problems which in some cases have been solved already. An example is the area of insecticides. 
Spiders have been making molecules which kill insects for hundreds of millions of years, so why not isolate and copy these powerful molecules? This is the work of Glenn King at the University of Queensland. Yeah, well, we started thinking about this about 10 years ago, and we thought, well, where could one look for molecules that would kill insects? And we decided that the best insect killers on the planet were spiders. And we figured that if anyone had worked out a way of killing insects, it had to be spiders, since they'd been working on it for around about 400 million years. You'd figure they'd probably come up with a solution or two by now. And so we, we started looking in their venom, and I think most people have a fairly poor appreciation, those non-scientists, of what venom is. And, and I think going into this project, I mistakenly thought that spider venom might contain 10, 20, a few dozen compounds. But it turns out to be an incredible chemical cocktail of hundreds and hundreds of different components. And our job was to pick through and try and find the ones that just killed insects and had no toxicity to vertebrates. And so even though some of the spiders we work with are toxic to humans, it's just one of those thousand or so compounds in there that's toxic to humans, and many of the others are completely harmless. And, of course, they're the ones we're really interested in. Yes, it's bad enough with all those substances in the venom, but which spiders? Yeah, so we, we chose the Australian funnel web spider, which may sound like an odd choice given that it is one of the four deadly spiders in the world. And, I, and, I, and again, I should put this in context, that there are about 40,000 characterised spiders now. There's a website you can go out and look up the names of them all. And of those 40,000, there are only four families of spiders that are potentially lethal to humans. That's our own funnel-web spider, the redback spider, the recluse spider in North America, and the Brazilian arm spider in Brazil. All other spiders are completely harmless. They might give you a nasty bite, but they're not going to kill you. So what that tells you of these thousands of compounds in these tens of thousands of spiders, most of them are going to kill insects and be harmless to vertebrates. Now, a group at Deakin Research, led by Merlin Howden about 10 years ago, had looked at a whole bunch of Australian spider venoms and said, which one of those is best at killing a really refractory agricultural pest, the cotton bollworm, which most people have probably heard of? It turned out funnel web spider was the best. And so we knew there were good compounds in there, and that was the reason we chose that spider. We're narrowing it down from all the hundreds of ingredients. How did you do that? So we have to fractionate out that we use a process called chromatography. It turns out that that process is not enough to fractionate out the what we now know are 500 to 1,000 compounds. So what we've done now is gone back and made DNA libraries from the venom gland so we can look at the DNA and sequence the whole profile of all the compounds that are in there and then we actually just make those compounds in bacteria and test them individually. And so from these 1,000 or so compounds, we've narrowed it down to only 10 or 20 that we're really interested in. And what did you do with that 10 or 20? Get insects and do a trial run, see how yeah, they react? We do, and the off. good thing is you don't need ethics approval to kill insects, <laughs> which makes the process a lot easier. It will come. <laughs> yes, probably, probably. Yeah, we actually usually use houseflies or crickets that we can just buy from the pet shop and we inject compounds into those and see what effects they have. And is it effective? Yes, it is. It's very effective. The compounds that we're using are as effective as any like compounds that, that people have purified from other venoms, whether they be scorpions or cone snails or anything else. And we were thinking originally that these things are peptides, so they're little tiny proteins. So what we like about them is they're natural compounds. We were concerned initially that these natural compounds weren't going to be orally available to insects. So if they ingested them, they'd get broken down in the digestive system of the insects and they wouldn't work. But it turns out that a lot of these are quite potent when the insects ingest them, and so we think these natural compounds could be very effective insecticides in their own right. Now, what happens when you actually use these? Because obviously there are some insects which you want to preserve, like dragonflies and butterflies and many others. Are they selective in that way? There's some selectivities, and so you may want to choose your particular compound for your particular insect that you're trying to kill. Another way around it is to, because these things are just proteins, they could be used to make genetically modified crops, and then the only insects that would be affected would be anything that preyed on those crops. So that's one way, again, of confining the range of insects that are targeted. And then there's the problem of human sensitivity, I suppose, because if I see a wonderful piece of fruit there and I think it's got the residues of spider poison on it. Yes, yeah, I know that, that's certainly an issue we're going to have to deal with in terms of commercialisation and, and, and what we have to get people to realise, as I said, is that spiders, for the most part, are completely harmless to humans and we've injected these things in a whole bunch of different vertebrates and they run around doing whatever they normally do without any ill effects. So I agree that's an, that's an issue that the marketing people will have to deal with. But the commercialisation, has it reached that far yet? Have you got some sort of spider venom, one that you're offering to companies? Not yet, so while I 
I was in the United States, from which I just returned recently, we spent out a company from the university I was at based on this research. The application that we're thinking of, first of all, is for controlling ectoparasites, and by that I mean fleas, mosquitoes and ticks on pets. Insecticides on pets are actually very harmful to young children, and so it would be nice to have something that was more environmentally friendly or at least that kids were less sensitive to. What about the Anopheles mosquito? Yeah, these things are really, really effective against mosquitoes. In fact, mosquitoes and flies are the things they kill best. And again, they're orally active against mosquitoes. We've been testing it against one that's really important in Queensland, Aedes aegypti, which is the dengue vector and carries a number of other nasty diseases. It's very effective against that. And so we think, again, there could be applications in terms of treatment of environmental situations to control mosquitoes. I can just imagine a factory full of funnel webs milked like crazy. <laughs> yes, the, the people often conjure up that image in their mind, but the, the truth of the matter is we make these things in bacteria, so we don't even have any funnel webs in the lab most of the time. <laughs> well, that's OK then. So next time you eat an apple, think of the spiders who've kept it in such good condition for you. That's all from me. You can hear more from The Science Show by going to ABC dot net dot au slash rn and clicking on the science show now back to the naked scientists oh thanks robin i'm gonna have that picture in my mind of a, a spider factory for the rest of the day that was robin williams of australia's abc radio national talking to glenn king from the university of queensland so naked scientists with dr chris and dr cat now it's time for our kitchen science and it's quite literally kitchen science this week because have you ever tried nettle tea well we sent ben valsler out to have a go but before then we sent him to plant sciences to find out how stinging nettles do actually well sting hello and welcome to kitchen science this week we're looking at nature's arsenal and we thought that probably the part of nature's arsenal that you're most likely to come into contact with will be stinging nettles. So I've come to Cambridge University's Department of Plant Sciences to talk to Dr Beverly Glover about exactly what they are. So Beverly, why is it that nettles sting? Well, they sting you in order to try and protect themselves. It's a mechanism to stop being eaten by rabbits, by cows, by things that would normally damage a plant out there in the wild. What advantage does stinging offer over, say, just tasting bitter? There are all sorts of different ways plants defend themselves. Some taste bitter, some make poisonous chemicals, some make cyanide even, um, and some go about it by having a, a combination of a, of a physical defence here, a, a sharp hair and a chemical component in it. So they really do put things off and they're very successful as a result. So the way a nettle stings is by effectively stabbing you with a really sharp hair and then injecting a, a bunch of poisons in. What sort of chemicals is it that they're using? Well, it's not a straight stabbing mechanism. The hair's very brittle. It's got silica in the cell wall. And what actually happens is when you brush against the nettle, you break the hair, leaving a sharp edge to the silica wall, which scratches you, and then the chemicals flow up the hair and into the scratch. So it it doesn't stab you so much as scratch you. The chemicals it's using are are an interesting question. People used to think it was formic acid because the sting feels very much like the sting you get from an ant or a a bee, and that's formic acid. But it turns out that it's not. It's it's a mix of acetylcholine and serotonin and histamine. So it's basically little... um, neurotoxins in there that are hitting your nerves and making it sting. So you mentioned that it's good to defend them from cows and that sort of thing. Are all animals affected equally? I'm not aware of anybody having tested a whole batch of animals, but there, there is some interesting data out there that says that rats aren't affected by them. So they, they tested some of the chemicals from the, the nettle sting on cell cultures, and while, they, while human cell cultures respond by producing various um, chemicals in response, um, rat cell cultures were apparently not affected at all, so it seems rats are immune. But certainly if you watch rabbits, they'll graze around them, and cows will as well. So they sting in order to defend themselves, to stop themselves being eaten. But is there actually anything in them worth eating? Yes, very much so. Well, all plants, of course, are full of sugar because they photosynthesize. But nettles grow in places that have got a lot of phosphate in the soil. So that's why they grow around farms and around human habitation. They, they grow on runoff from, from agriculture. Um, and so phosphate's expensive for most plants to acquire. And the fact that nettles have got a lot of it in them makes them quite um, interesting to most animals to eat. But apparently they're also quite high in vitamin C and vitamin A as well, which is why people eat them Sometimes you can make nettle tea and nettle soup. And they were apparently used a lot in the Irish potato famine as a sort of standby food source when things got really bad. Is there any way to avoid being stung? (laughs) Well, all sorts of different ways. Um, The theory goes that because the the hair breaks when you brush against it, if you actually grab it and press quite firmly, then you'll bend it over and it won't break, won't be able to scratch you and you won't get stung. So that's one way. Um, Another way is is to choose your nettle carefully. 
So there's a lot of evidence to say that the frequency of the stinging hairs increases in fields where there's a lot of grazing. So if, you, if you're looking at a, a nettle in a field full of cows, the chances are it's a pretty spiky nettle. But if you go somewhere where there aren't many cows, not many rabbits around and so on, then the, the nettles will be less stingy. And so you might actually find it's easier to, to grab them. And in my experience, if you go down to the base of the stem and actually grab the nettle down near the roots as close to the soil as possible, it, there are very few hairs usually down there as well. Once you've got your nettle, the way then to stop it stinging you is to heat it in some way, because heat denatures the, the chemicals in the sting. Fantastic. And if you have been stung and it's itching and stinging, is there anything you can do to stop it? Well, because one of the chemicals is a histamine, then applying an antihistamine or taking an antihistamine will stop the sting happening fairly quickly. But usually it only stings for about 20 minutes, so anything to take your mind off it, a nice ice cream or something, will probably do the trick. Beverly Glover, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Now, armed with Beverly's advice, I'm going to try and make myself a cup of nettle tea without getting stung. So the first thing I've done is I've come somewhere where I know there's no grazing and that's my own garden. I don't keep any rabbits or anything like that. And I need to find a nettle and grab it from near the root, just down near the soil there, and grab it really hard. Ooh. And pull. Okay, that was a success. Now I have myself a nettle. I'm going to take it inside and see if I can make some nettle tea. Okay, and I'm on my way into my kitchen now. So the first thing I need to do is to rinse these nettles off. Okay, so now that I've got my nettles all rinsed, the next thing I need to do is to cut the leaves off because I don't really want to use the stem in my cup of nettle tea. There we go, I think we're ready. Well, now I'm going to take a handful of my nettles and I'm going to put them in my... Ah! Okay, that's strike one for the nettles. Let's hope I just don't get stung again. Put them in my cup and I'll set the kettle boiling. Now, while the kettle's boiling, I'd just like to say, if you do want to do this at home, feel free to try it out, but if you want to, you can wear rubber gloves. They will keep you safe from the nettle stings. Um, But I thought I would just give this a go with no protection whatsoever. The kettle's boiled now, so let's pour my tea. Already, that smells very plant-like. smells like a herbal tea. But I'm going to leave it to brew for a bit, and then I'll come back to you later when I'm ready to drink. Well, it's now been about ten minutes. I've let my nettle tea brew, and I've let it cool down. I'm now going to scoop out all of the nettles, because I don't want bits of nettle getting stuck in my teeth. So there we go. And now it's just time to drink it, I guess. Oh. Well, it's, uh, it tastes quite good, really. It's a bit like uh, green tea. It's got that sort of fresh, leafy flavour, but it's a bit more bitter. And I've actually heard that if you add lemon to nettle tea, it'll change colour, a bit like a pH indicator. But I think we'll save that for a different kitchen science. So there we go. You can make your own nettle tea, and you can avoid, you can almost avoid being stung if you follow some simple rules. Try and find your nettles in a place where there's very little grazing, so the nettles have developed fewer stings. You grab the nettles very firmly so that you just push the spikes away instead of breaking them into your skin. Try and grab them towards the base where there should be fewer spikes and then heat them up. And it's the heating stage that's really important because it denatures some of the proteins in the poisons. It denatures the proteins that make up those spikes. So it stops the nettles being able to inject that into you. That's it for Kitchen Science this week. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you very much, Ben. I've just got this image in my mind of Ben stumbling in from the garden with a microphone in one hand and a nettle in the other, and I'm kind of hoping that he didn't at any time muddle the two up. Uh, Ian in Northampton got in touch and said, if you grab a stingy nettle from the bottom and then slide your hand up the shaft, it won't sting you, apparently. That's up to you to try. And you can find out loads more experiments to do at home, most of which don't involve getting stung by nasty stinging nettles, by going to our website, which is thenakedscientist.com slash kitchenscience. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. Now it's time for our question of the week. And last week we explored what would happen if the Earth's magnetic poles suddenly switched overnight. Ah! And this week, Diana is back with another one of your taxing questions. Welcome to Question of the Week. This week we're looking at octopus brains. Neil from Cambridge asked... 
Does an octopus have one motor cortex with eight divisions, one for each arm, or just one brain to control them all? In humans, the motor cortex on the left side of the brain controls the right half of the body and vice versa. So can we apply similar logic to an octopodial? Here's Professor Scott Hooper from the University of Ohio to give us some insight. A 2001 article in Science by Sambre, Gutfreund, Fiorito, Flasch and Hochner gives the answer. Octopus arms contain a very large number of neurons. To show that these neurons generate arm movements, Sambre and her co-workers amputated octopus arms and they then electrically stimulated nerves in the arms that normally carry information from the arms to the brain. This stimulation induced normal arm movement and importantly, in many cases, the movements did not begin until after the stimulation had ended. What these experiments thus show is that signals from the brain trigger arm movements They give the command to move, but it is the peripheral nervous systems, one in each arm, that actually calculate how to make the movements happen. Now, this is a very efficient way of doing things because it means that the brain can concentrate on the environment and on responding to it, not on boring calculations about what muscles to activate. And we have the same efficiency in human nervous systems. When we walk, it is spinal cord neural networks not the brain, that's calculating in what order and how strongly leg muscles need to be activated to produce walking. The higher centers of the brain are thus free to do other things, such as looking for predators, thinking, and talking on radio shows. So the arms of an octopus really do have a mind of their own, working with ganglia or groups of nerve cells rather than motor cortices. Dr. Jeremy Niven from the University of Cambridge added that octopuses tend to preferentially use only a small subset of their arms, perhaps just one or two most of the time. This could potentially affect the relative shape and size of the ganglia in each arm. Next week, we'll be considering Linda's question on jumping out of a moving lift like an action hero or heroine. Say a lift breaks and the car falls to the ground. If you jump up right before the car makes contact with the ground... So you would be in the air when the lift hits the ground. Would you still land as hard as you would if you didn't jump at all? And Kat's question on injuries and the weather. I broke my elbow when I was younger, and now, when there's a sudden change in the weather, the joint really aches. I assume it's got something to do with the change in air pressure as a new weather front moves into the area, and if that's right, then how would it make my arm hurt? Have you ever leapt from a falling lift? Or do you know why old injuries are affected by the changing weather? Send your answers and questions to question of the week at thenakedscientist.com. That's all for this week. Back to the studio. Thank you very much, Diana. So if you uh, know whether or not jumping at the right time could save you from getting squished in a falling lift or how old broken bones can act as a barometer on a personal basis, then do let us know. You just drop us a line. It's chris at nakedscientist.com or you can email question of the week at thenakedscientist.com. And just before we close, I've got a quick question for our guest, Gavin Lang, who's from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Now, we've talked a lot about snakes, venoms, all sorts of nasties. But what I want to know is, how come snakes don't kind of poison themselves all the time? Uh, right. Interesting question. That um, Snakes are immune from, their, from the effects of their own venom. But this only works for a specific species. So a rattlesnake would be immune from the venom of another rattlesnake should it bite it. But if a cobra was to bite the rattlesnake, then it would probably be envenomed. Uh, we are, there are research groups in the world who've isolated uh, some immunoglobulins from the, the serum of snakes that are seen to be somehow protective against the effects of snake venom. So, and so there is like an endogenous uh, inhibition that is uh, occurring in the, um, the venom. It is part of it also, Gavin, that the venom's locked away in a certain anatomical structure, the venom gland, and in the same way as my digestive juices are locked away inside my pancreas with cells around them that are very strongly protective against the, the action of those toxins and those degradative enzymes. Therefore, the venom can't attack the snake's body because it can't get to the tissues that are sensitive to it. it. Yes, indeed. That, that is this, also the um, an area that is uh, a lot of research is... Uh, has been hinted on because there are these um, endogenous inhibitors built into snake venom itself that is keeping it in a very quiescent kind of state um, up until it's released by the, the snake. 
absolutely fascinating. So that's why snakes don't kill themselves with their own venom. Anyway, before we leave you, we have a quick email from Todd Smith in Holland, who says, I'm an expat, American expat living in the Netherlands. He loves our podcast and our sexy British accents. Thank you. Thanks for that, Todd. Also one here from Asker Delinska, who says, I'm... Uh, my name's Asker. I live in Perth, and I recently discovered your podcast. And these people who listen at work during the day get me. She says, uh, they make my working day so much more worthwhile. I listen to them whilst I'm on my computer, and then I brag to my mates down the pub about all the trivia and scientific findings I've learned. Thanks for the great effort. And I'm fully in support of brain nudism. So thank you very much, Asker Delinska, who's in Perth, and that's the Perth in Australia. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget, the podcast awards are ongoing right now and we desperately need your votes to secure either Best Produced or Best Science and Technology Show, or maybe even both. Um, there's a link to the voting page for those awards on our website, nakedscientist.com. Thank you very much to this week's guests, Gavin Lang, Jim Olson, Bruce Livett, Glenn King and Beverly Glover, and also to our wonderful production team, Petro Minch and Nettleman Ben Valsler. Next week, it's our summer special science question and answer show. So if you've got a question, then just send it to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll try to answer it for you. Until then, have a great week, enjoy your summer, and see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.